0: With the killer of Shan O'Callaghan in custody, the defence did its best to muddy the waters by putting the decisions Detective Superintendent Steve Vulture made on the day of the arrest, under the microscope. In voir dire, the judge ruled that, while he might have had cause to invoke the urgent interview strategy prior to finding Sean, he erred when he allowed Christopher Halliwell to confess to the second murder of Becky Godden Edwards. Having made a plea of not guilty, Halliwell awaited trial for Shan's murder. With the confession evidence ruled inadmissible, he knew the police would have to prove his guilt in court. Shan's family still hoped it would not come to that, as her mother Elaine remembers.
3: At some point during the proceedings following going up to Preston, or it may have been just before then, they were hoping that Halliwell would change his plea to guilty because obviously he would have been aware of all the forensic evidence against him for Sean. so they were still hoping that he would change his plea and we were told that if they got an indication from the defence that he was going to change his plea that we would be told I can't remember the exact times but I got a phone call during the day from my close liaison officer at the time Maddy to say that He's going guilty. He's changed his plea. I can remember breaking down. I then immediately phoned Liam, who was at work, my eldest son. I couldn't get the words out. I thought I could. But as soon as I started to speak, I just broke down. I had to to ask Liam to give me a minute to compose myself. Emotional I was at her just saying the words that he was going to go guilty. Again, there was just a sudden outpouring even though I felt that he would have at some point, just hearing that that's... But you still, even though I got a phone call from her, you still think, what if he just changes at the last minute? What if on the day, he just decides, you know, what if he's playing games with his own defense team and then on the day? So we all sort of still wanted to hear that in the court from him. So obviously it was really quite straightforward. He was asked to re-enter his plea. He pleaded guilty. The court was then dismissed while obviously the judge considered the sentencing. Then we were called back in. Not, I'm not sure she used the lunch recess, and then we went back in in the afternoon when the judge delivered her summing up and then the sentence.
0: In the end, the evidence in the case the police had built had been overwhelming, but crucially, only because Sean's body had been recovered. As would come out later in court, Halliwell's bite mark was found on Sean's body, allowing the police to secure an all important DNA trace. Sean O'Callaghan
2: still bore the forensic traces of Christopher Halliwell. Without finding Sean O'Callaghan, Christopher Halliwell would be walking free, people need to know that. And because he'd never, he pleaded guilty to murder because his DNA was on Shana Callahan, a definitive piece of evidence. But for all the talk in this case, but for that one exchange between me as an individual and him as an individual, neither of whom had anywhere else to go in this case, Halliwell would be walking free now. The girls would never
0: have been found. To this day, they wouldn't have been found. Christopher Halliwell was given a 25-year sentence with a reduction for time already served. At last, Shan's family got to see him face the consequences of what he'd done. In court on the day, even though her own daughter's murder hadn't been added to his charges, Becky Godden-Edward's mother, Karen, recalls the convicted killer looked shocked at his sentence.
4: On the day he was convicted, the viewing gallery was filled with my family and friends, and we had an excellent view of Christopher Halliwell front row. And I will never ever forget his sentence when it was handed down to him by Justice Cox. He went a wonderful shade of white. The smug look that he'd had on his face throughout was wiped off in seconds.
0: Given that many prisoners are released on parole after serving only half their sentence, Steve was still very concerned about how quickly Halliwell might be back on the streets.
2: Well, the judge would give recommendations, but he'd be eligible to apply for parole after 50% of the term was served, which would be about 12 years, which this is what happens all the time. You know, Some of the parole board decisions, and they're out of politicians' hands, they're out of judges' hands, they're, they're as far as
0: I can see, really quite dangerous. But that's what would have happened. In Steve Vulture's eyes, it had never been more critical to prosecute Halliwell for murdering Becky as well as Sean. Being convicted of a second murder might ensure Halliwell was never released to do this to anyone else. But Steve himself was now in the spotlight of an IPCC investigation following the complaint lodged against him by Becky's father. With Sean's trial complete, the investigation could formally commence, meaning another long and anxious wait for Steve. While Becky's father, John, wanted to blame Steve and the Wiltshire police for failing his daughter, Becky's mother, Karen, felt the opposite.
4: I remember having a phone call from the Independent Police and Complaints Commission, which stand for IPCC for short, they asked me how I felt about Steve Fulcher. And I said, Why are you asking? Well, we've had a complaint from John Godden about his behaviour and the arrest procedure and why Becky's name had been dropped from the indictment because it was his fault. I was absolutely well, you could have knocked me off my perch. I, I couldn't believe it. And then it was almost like they wanted me to be against Steve Fulcher as well. Never, I said, never. I said, that man brought my daughter home. I. Okay, Becca's name's been dropped from the indictment, but he's brought her home. I've been able to lay her to rest. Why would I want to make a complaint against him? I was horrified. I thought, what sort of madness is this?"
0: The investigation would take some time and, having been suspended from duty, all Steve could do in the meantime was chew his fingernails. His mental health went over a cliff edge and he was prescribed antidepressants and sleeping pills to manage as best he could. And while Steve was on tenterhooks, the situation took a toll on Becky's family as well. Journalist Steve Brody talks about the effect of all the legal wrangling on Becky's mum, Karen.
5: She obviously deeply, deeply loved her daughter and had never really recovered from her disappearing. Although, of course, Becky had had her problems. And then she had to sit through this trial... Knowing full well, she knew uh, that no charges would be brought against Hannibal for the murder of her daughter. And this was particularly difficult. Uh, I think it took some understanding. A lot of people had difficulty understanding it, but particularly her. The body had been found, the man had confessed. No charges, because at the time, there was no supporting forensic evidence, unlike Forsberg. Charlotte Caroline, where there was evidence which allowed the, the child to go ahead against him for, for her murder. And Karen Edwards fought from day one for justice for Becky. A murder which he confessed to. He took police officers to. She couldn't understand it. And um, she also couldn't understand the decision on that very day to suspend Steve Fulcher. She couldn't understand it. The O'Callaghan's came out and, and said how wonderful he was. She said he was wonderful, and yet the man was suspended his career in ruins. Astonishment, and she didn't like it,
0: and she stuck to her guns. The great thing about Karen was she's always stuck to her guns. And not only was the treatment of Steve Fulcher upsetting to Karen, She also felt that other officers seemed to lack his absolute commitment to bringing Halliwell to justice for her daughter's murder.
4: Well, the police, I felt, led me up the wrong path. We were convinced that there were still things bubbling away. We still felt that they were investigating Becky's murder. That's what I was led to believe. I was updated regularly, and then it became less regular... Then we were called to the police station, Charlie and I. Or well, we asked for an update, police station. And I can remember sitting there and it was who was in charge of the investigation at the time. He saw through Sian's, uh murder investigation. And I was actually sat in a room with Charlie around a big table with other police officers And the conversation went along the lines of, we don't have enough evidence to convict Christopher Halliwell for Becky's murder, but he's gone away for a long time for Shan's. Are we happy with that? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought, hang on a minute, here we go. Another card dealt to us. I felt, They were never going to investigate Becky's murder. I took that as, that's it. We don't have enough evidence. The case is so old because it had gone back eight years. They wouldn't have enough evidence to convict. They were relying on the confession, which had been now thrown out of court and could never be used in a court of law, been ruled inadmissible by a high court judge. So no evidence, no conviction. Halliwell he got away with Becky's murder. Here I go again, head in a turmoil. I walked out, I said, no, I'd never be happy with that. I remember walking out with Charlie and I remember we went for a coffee and I sat there. I said, Charlie, he's getting away with Becky's murder. He said, well, we can't let that happen, can we? I said, no, we can't. I think we're gonna have to start a petition of some description. We've got to do something. Somebody's got to hear us. This is not on. This case has got to be opened. He needs to stand trial for Becky's murder.
0: This podcast has invited everyone involved to have a say, the Wiltshire Police included. While it might have seemed to others that their investigation of Becky's murder had stalled, they assured us that it hadn't. Here's their response. Further to Lord Justice Cox, in February 2012, ruling the confessions obtained by former Detective Superintendent Fulcher had significantly and substantially breached the requirements of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. The original charge relating to Becky Godden-Edwards was removed by the CPS from the indictment. In October 2012, Halliwell pleaded guilty to the murder of Sharno O'Callaghan, and later that month, Wiltshire Police launched a new investigation into the death of Becky Godden-Edwards, which ultimately led to Halliwell being convicted of her murder in September 2016. But whatever was going on behind the scenes as far as the police were concerned, did not diminish the inherent unfairness felt by Becky's mother. As you can guess, Karen isn't the sort of woman to take things lying down. If Wiltshire Police thought that this issue was going to go away, they had gravely misjudged Karen Edwards.
4: Charlie said the first thing we've got to do is go and see the MP. Now, I didn't know Robert Buckland at that time. I'd had no dealings with Robert Buckland at that time, had no cause to go and see Robert. I knew his face, but I didn't know Robert. Made an appointment, went to see Robert in his office, which was then at Milton Road. Shook hands, introduced ourselves, briefly gave him the outline of the case. Fortunately, he is an ex-criminal law barrister, so he had a lot of the knowledge of, of the discussion. And he said, right. I said, I'd like to launch a petition. How do I do it? I started a petition. And the wording was along the lines of PACE, which is the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, needs to be looked at. It needs change. It is not black and white. It is guidelines. It is not black and white. There's a lot of gray areas and that's that's been proven with what has just happened. You know, the confession, that should be allowed to be used. So, between Robert Buckland and ourselves, we sat down and decided the way that we, the way forward was to look at changing PACE.
0: The petition called for a review of the PACE codes and Karen promoted it day in, day out, gaining thousands of signatures.
4: We had about 70,000 signatures by the end of this long, drawn-out campaign, which took me years to do, and it was hard work. It became a full-time plus job. There was even a question in Parliament brought up by Robert Buckland to David Cameron, and David Cameron said, we'll look into this. Through Robert Buckland, we went to see Damian Green, who was the Justice Minister at the time, and I gave the inadmissible evidence, which was two inches thick, of paperwork and jargon. I gave it to Damien Green, and I asked Damien Green what he would have done if he'd have been in Stephen Fulcher's shoes. Would my daughter still be left out there? Or would she have been brought home to rest? He scratched his chin. He took the, the pack that I'd given him, and I spent a long time with Damien Green, longer than my 10 minutes, and he left. The next thing I knew, there were so many other people involved. He said they were going to look at it. When I came away from meeting Damien Green, I actually for the first time felt in my gut, confident. I felt he had listened to us. I felt he I really, truly believed that he was going to help us. And I was asked how I felt. Well, I felt confident. I felt truly confident. And I felt things have got to change. Things have got to be looked at. Because how many other families have been in a similar position to me? Or a police officer been in a similar position to Steve Fulcher, but chose to stick to it. We will never know. We will never know.
0: Shortly after this meeting, there was a coroner's court hearing in April 2013 in order to determine cause of death.
4: Bearing in mind the charges have been dropped against Christopher Halliwell, but we still need to know the verdict. We sat there, we listened to gruesome detail, and I remember one part of the detail which really stuck in my mind, and it was when Becky had been found there were weeds growing up through her ribcage. And I can remember that, that was like cutting me with a knife. And I remember Charlie cuddling me, trying to comfort me. And I think he'd just become oblivious to what was going on because I was, I was upset, but I needed to be in there. I needed to be in there to see, we'd waited a long time for this. And this was what I thought was going to be my only chance of having a court hearing, even though it was a coroner, not a judge.
0: As distressing as it was for Karen, she just needed to know the truth.
4: He said, obviously, uh, there was a chip to one of the rib cages they believe could have been a knife, but they weren't sure. They described Becky's remains had been found. She had no head. There was parts of her body that weren't there. Was it animal? Was it mechanical? Or was it something more sinister? And I was absorbing this like a sponge. It was like, I couldn't, for the first time, I'd actually heard the detail For the first time, I was hearing intricate details that I'd never heard before. The police had never told us these things before. Weeds growing from rib cages—what what is that all about? You don't dream of this. You don't imagine that that's what it's going to be. The verdict that the coroner had come up with, Becky's death was narrative, meaning death unknown. They didn't know how she died. They knew it was under suspicious circumstances because she was found in a field, in the middle of a field. She didn't take herself there. Somebody had put her there. But because there would been no conviction for Becky's murder, it had to be a narrative verdict because they had no evidence. Her head had been missing. It was parts of her body had been missing. They couldn't tell whether she'd been strangled. There was lots of things they couldn't tell.
0: When the coroner couldn't give a cause of death, it was just another in a long line of things that sent Karen's world into a spin.
4: I think the world's gone crazy. I think our justice system has gone absolutely berserk. When you look at it from an outsider looking in, you think everything's black and white. You get the man who murdered. You get the conviction, he goes to prison the victim is buried, the family move on the best they can. But that wasn't happening. There was one thing on top of another, on top of another. I thought I was actually going to go mad, but I had to keep myself grounded. I had to learn to put my life into little boxes. That was my coping mechanism. And I remember coming out of the coroner's inquest again Standing on those steps and saying that today we had a narrative verdict for Becky's death. We knew Christopher Halliwell had done it, but he'd got away with it.
0: For Steve, too, it felt like justice for Becky was further off than ever. And to make matters worse, in September that year, 2013, 18 months after the complaint against Steve was first made, the IPCC finally published its findings. It made grim reading. Journalist Rob Murphy explains. The police watchdog
1: said there were two accounts uh, of gross misconduct which Steve should face. The first one was over his handling of the media. The second one was how he threw the rule book away and ignored arrest guidelines when speaking with Hallowell. They said that that decision was catastrophic for the prosecution uh, in the Becky murder case. But they also went on to say that if he hadn't have taken this risk, there's nothing to say that Hallowell would have ever confessed.
0: But Debbie Page, the colleague who had stood by Steve's side on the day of the arrest and noted down everything that was said. She felt a sense of disbelief in the findings.
6: So I was with Steve um, and another officer when the IPCC report came out and uh, I remember us all reading it at various stages going through it and quickly realising that it was a pretty damning report of all the actions that he'd taken on that day. And uh, I stopped reading it. I, I got so far and I just stopped, I didn't want to read it anymore because it was just so biased. It was it was, it was a ridiculously, it was just ridiculous. You, as you read it, you could see that it was, it had very emotive language in it, as if it was designed to shock. And one of the lines in it, which I, what I was really strange it was it said something along the lines of um, what Steve did had a catastrophic effect on the murder investigation of Becky. It was a ridiculous use of words. I don't think the IPCC conducted a thorough enough investigation. I think that they were led by the judge's comments um, and outcome, and as an example, I wasn't interviewed for the investigation. I was phoned once and asked, was I at the press conference um, that was held that Steve conducted, Uh, for which I wasn't at the press conference, and that's the only interaction that I had with the IPCC. So they weren't really interested in actually getting a second account of Halliwell's conversation with Steve Fulcher, which I did find unbelievable. He did the only thing that could be done. Um, The the notion that a police officer would have stopped in his tracks at any point, either once Shana Callahan's body had been discovered or Halliwell saying, do you want another body? The notion of someone saying, do you know what? Actually, I don't because that's not how we work. As a detective, that's just a crazy notion.
0: Steve Fulcher, too, was struck by the fact that the investigation didn't include Debbie's account. If they didn't bother to talk to those who were actually there on the day, it made him wonder just how thorough they were. The
2: investigation itself was a travesty. They didn't even take a statement from Debbie Peach, the one witness to the exchange I had with Christopher Halliwell. They felt themselves empowered to defame me by publishing this report online, notwithstanding the fact most of it is demonstrably untrue, and all of it is defamatory in my view. Shan, were she alive, or her family, wouldn't thank me for following such paths that the IPCC have offered. This notion that we would have taken Halliwell into custody without any evidence, with no recovery of Shan O'Callaghan. Because there is no mechanism under English and Welsh law by which you could expect a confession from custody because the role of the solicitor representing him is to prevent him incriminating himself. So if you did that, you'd have to accept the inevitable death of Sharno Callahan, and in reality, never finding her because she's here in a remote location that we had no possible notion of. I never lied. I explained to the court and courts that followed exactly what I did why I did it, the imperative that I was faced with. I've been treated like a criminal in this set of circumstances, and yet, but for my course of action, Becky would still be in that field. Sean would be, would never be found. And Christopher Halliwell would be walking the streets. Now, Christopher Halliwell has never leaked before or since, or only in a very minimal sense. And he was determined when I met him at Barbary Castle to exercise his his rights. He knew his rights, and if he kept silent, there would be no case here. Once he and I had formed that bond for four hours, it was an extraordinary bond. He, He was crying on my shoulder at times. He was genuinely contrite, that was the point. He was genuinely contrite, which is why he gave me the second victim. And that's why I was so surprised that when I left him at East Leach and came back to continue our conversation when he was in police custody and that his position had completely reversed. He got himself a solicitor and was now offering no comment. I was both surprised and disappointed because he'd already, he'd already taken the decision. He'd taken me and his entire surveillance crew to two deposition sites of two of his victims. He was crying on my shoulder, He's asking me, Steve, what can you help me, what, what can you do to help me? Genuine contrition, in my view, at that moment in time. He's never shown it since. And if I hadn't accepted it, it's an absolute nonsense to suggest that if I'd rejected his voluntary confession pertaining to Becky, that he would have somehow felt inclined with a solicitor whose job it is to prevent him from incriminating himself, somehow subsequently disclose that
0: location. That clearly would never have been the case. Rather than defend their star detective, senior officers at Wiltshire Police, who less than two years earlier had been fulsome in their praise for Steve's actions, decided to initiate disciplinary proceedings against him in January 2014. Journalist Rob Murphy takes up the story.
1: This means that Steve's career is in, in complete limbo. He's suspended from the force. He's facing two gross misconduct charges. He is a man who, uh, a year or so ago, had been nominated for a Queen's Police Medal, who had been promoted to a national agency, and it was such a fall from grace for him.
0: For Karen Edwards, the focus on Steve Fulcher took the focus away from Becky
4: Wiltshire Police then decide that they are going to make a meal of this and order a conduct hearing, an investigation, into the performance of Stephen Fulcher and his arrest procedure. I just couldn't believe that this was going forward. They were focusing on Steve Fulcher and not Becky. It was, it was like they were making a meal of him.
0: Steve's position had gone from bad to very bad. From hero detective, he was now staring down the barrel of a gross misconduct finding, the penalty for which is dismissal. A man who had devoted almost 30 years, his entire professional life, to policing, was in danger of losing his career for catching a killer. I mean, it's only
2: recently I've got a sleep pattern back, you know. So it does take its toll over the years. But no, I didn't I didn't sleep throughout that period, certainly not through the night. I was travelling around the country thinking, well, at any point, my credibility is going to be shot through. I mean, I, I don't think I had the propensity to be depressed, but I don't really don't know how you de- define that. I mean, if you're not sleeping, and if you're constantly concerned about something and it, a sort of Damocles that's hanging over your head that is, is bound to shear, <laughs> shear your head off at some point and only you seem to be able to predict it, it's... um, and, and you can't talk to anybody because there's very few people that could even understand this issue. And you have to take your chances in court to see what it is the defence... Because you'd normally have a defence case statement. The, the defence... Council would produce a line of defense that would enable you to at least get your thought processes in, in place. You know, are they going to claim that I oppressed him? Well, they did, as a matter of fact, even though quite obviously I didn't actually oppress him at all. So it was an extremely tense time, and you've got to bear in mind that that tension never slacked up. It just got worse from the point of the voir dire, because from that point of voir dire, I knew I was doomed. But instead of just cutting me off at the throat in January 2012, I was kept on the string for another two years. And it's that pressure that I defy anybody to be able to cope with.
0: On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma...
5: Halliwell was clearly trying to almost bribe his way out of a very severe sentence.
4: He asked his cellmate, how many do I need to be a a serial killer? His mate replied, three.